Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the One Broke Actress podcast, an honest account of actor life, plus a few lessons I learn in the process. I am your host, Sam Valentine, and I am so excited to be back with you in 2023. We haven't had a podcast since before Christmas, so it has been a minute. And thank you guys so much for sticking around. I hope you had a very restful holiday. I think, I have a prediction. I think that rest is going to be the theme and highlight and buzzword of 2023. I'm just going to put it out there based on the content and the trends and the stuff I've absorbed and seen, not just for actors, but for everyone. I think we're going to hear a lot about this in the coming year. So I hope you got a big handful. I hope you got plenty. And I hope you guys are excited for the new year. I have a lot of content coming out in last week's episode. You guys already heard my opinion on actors and New Year's stuff. But before we get to today's podcast, I just wanted to say that this year can be whatever you want it to be because you get to decide where you put your goalposts. And I would encourage you to really open yourselves up to deciding you are worthy of whatever happens even if it doesn't mean signing with your agent or even if it doesn't mean booking a job or whatever the heck happens, like, please, you guys, let's just make this year we have a great fucking time doing this job that we get to do. It is an absolute privilege to be able to pursue this career. And I have already seen people coming out of the woodwork to promise you that 2023 is going to be the year your acting career takes off. And like, if you have been here before, you know, that makes me exhausted just thinking that someone wants to put a timeline on how this whole thing works. So please stick around with One Broke Actress, stay here for lots of good content coming up and enjoy the process. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to have a good friend of mine on. J.T. Billings is a writer, director, and showrunner, and he is on today's podcast. He is a 2022 WGA award-winning LGBTQ writer currently working on the third season of Are You Afraid of the Dark? That is right. That was coming out actually when we recorded this podcast, I believe. He is currently working on several unannounced franchise-based series for Paramount+. Plus. He also sold the show to Quibi. He talks a little bit about that in today's podcast. Do you guys remember that? And he hails all the way from my birthplace of Kansas City. And he got his start in film editing. And he talks to us all about that process today of building a career. What success looks like when it happens so quickly in an outside timeline and how he works with actors on set. I know we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast. And as a showrunner of a show that works a lot with young actors and children, JT is going to share a lot of insights of what that life is like, how to work with kids, getting your child seen in this business, et cetera, et cetera. He shares so much good stuff and how much work this business takes to maintain and how sometimes we have such a give and take of things like personal relationships and time and how involving your community and having people who support what you do is one of the utmost important things in building a long-term career. I am so excited for this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please enjoy JT Billings. It's funny because I was literally just in Mexico with you and now we're on this like official platform pretending like we're so... I know. I know. Uh, it'll be a fun time. I've been looking forward to this and like I'm glad that you were able to be flexible because last week was like super stressful and now I'm like, oh, I kind of love jumping into the things that I want to do on a Monday. It's great. Ah, that's <laughs> Actually, I was curious because you've done this a few times now, right? Like you've had more than one show at this point. Do you have any sort of ritual or routines to your life at this point? Or is it just kind of like fucking random? You'd think I would. I haven't. If there's a grand <laughs> lesson to be learned in all of this, I'm waiting to graduate. A lot of writers, <laughs> even when I listen to podcasts or like, you know, their methods, they seem to have it figured out and they're like, well, here's what I do. And I'm like, that's great. I kind of go with the flow in the moment because every project is so different. And I'm just like, maybe one day I'll find my own workflow or my own kind of machine that goes. But right now I just roll with the punches and make it up as I go along. So... <laughs> 
Do you have any like pre-writing rituals when you sit down to write? Is there like, do you have to have like a clean desk and a coffee and like a thing? Or is there just like, you just do it when you have time? I am a professional procrastinator. So yeah, the desk has to be cleaned, but not only that, all of the dishes, have, especially working from home. I I look around and if there's something like, you know, seasonal decor is like, you know, it was October 31st. And then on November 1st, I had a major deadline and I was like, I can't because the Halloween decorations are still out. I'm so sorry, project. I'm going to have to come back to you later. And I spent the whole day putting decorations away. I will say, this is kind of a sideways answer to your question. I've always found that writing is maybe 10% actually writing. And so much of it comes from the fluid in between. It's going on walks with my dog. It's listening to books and podcasts. I love driving in my car with music. And it's it's just doing something around, you know, in your day-to-day life for your mental health, whether that's working out or cleaning your apartment. So much of storytelling I have found comes to me in those moments. And then the, the work and my craft is like that 10% where you just have to like sit down and do it. Going back to your question, no, I think if, if I do have a pre-ritual, it's just, I mean, I love a good iced coffee on my desk with my laptop. I need glasses now, so those have to be available. <laughs> and then other than that, I've tried writing to music, which sometimes I can do now. But actually, it's easier to just put on kind of background cafe noises or something, because I used to love going to coffee shops and having that experience where you feel like you're a part of a, like a co-op. And so, you know, whether I'm at WeWork, I I enjoy that or Thrive or a cafe, but when I'm home, I kind of have to cheat the synergy to be like, oh no, I need to be here. Someone needs to be making coffee in the background for me to feel productive. Yeah. There's something about it. I think that's why people miss offices is like that collective, like we are all working, like it it works for some reason. It's an energy that's lacking, or I should say there's obviously like many pros to working from home, you know, the mm-hmm. flexibility. And when I was in a writer's room, it would be great where we would meet for two hours and then you'd have a two hour break to like throw in that load of laundry or to like make yourself lunch or go work out and get out your out of your system and then come back and be ready to work. There's a lot of productivity that comes with that. It's an energy that you you thrive off of other people working hard and you kind of like want to match them. And that's what yeah. you're not getting at home. Yeah. And that's also something I think is worth noting for a lot of jobs in this industry. It feels like there's a lot of, we feel very isolated even before the pandemic, right? Like as actors, we'd go in little rooms and do our like piece and then we would leave or like writers Mm -hmm. where if you're not in your room, especially if you're writing something solo, you're kind of in your own piece and a ton of actors also write who listen to this. And because they're not in writer's rooms, it feels very isolating. Are there things you've done to like fight against that? Cause I know you're writing beyond just in writer's rooms. So luckily I am not just a writer, but I'm also a showrunner and executive producer of my projects. And with that comes a huge plus I get to go on set and interact and, and produce. So back in the day, a showrunner you know, you, you spend time crafting the series in the writer's room and then the showrunner would obviously be on set, but writers would also go and produce their individual episodes. And whether that means, you know, being on set available just to write, to come up with like the line uh, swaps or, you know, production realities are like, Hey, we had to actually change it to here. This would maybe change the dialogue. They would be available. And it's just cheaper now to send one person. So the showrunner will go and just do all of it. As much as I love like working around the clock, it's a huge drawback that I've seen where it, that was the training program. That was how to get writers the proper experience, like be on set learning that. And I mean, so this all comes back to if I, <laughs> like, if I was just a writer where I was on Zoom five days a week, And then I would have to like bury my head into writing, which I feel like as an actor, like learning your lines and reading sides, especially in this new era where like people don't go to auditions anymore. I mean, do you, do you, is that like in your experience, is it getting back to that place? Or I feel like self-tapes is just the new norm for here to stay. I think they're going to stay a few commercials I've gone back for in a room, but like I mean, even the last commercial I booked, it was audition self-tape and then Zoom callback. And like, 
I'm fine with that now because I can practice in exactly the frame that they're going to see. Oh, oh, I know. It, it gives you autonomy of, over your craft where you can, you know, almost direct and be like, I know exactly what I'm turning in. And I think that's a huge upside. So I'm all here for self-tapes. When I cast people for my shows, it's all through self-tapes. Even when we do callbacks, it's all through Zoom. And I think as, you know, society, we've kind of had to learn how to like pull out the energy through the computer screen. But what you do miss out on is the interactions. And so I'd imagine like as an actor, if you're in the room, you can get feedback in the moment and kind of make those decisions on the fly to like evaluate and tweak your performance, which is acting. Like let's, that's what it is. It's not just how sharp you could have memorized your sides and prepared this take on it. And so as a writer, it does feel very much if you're putting people at home and then on zoom to write and it's such a, like a solitary field anyway, you're just with your, you're in storyland and your thoughts to go from that into set where all now you're really balancing so many different tasks and a lot of people are depending on you. Your job is not writing at all on set. And so I thrive on that. I like having a lot more, responsibilities and creative control. So I would say, yes, I I do get that experience of, you know, getting, still getting to interact with, you know, my colleagues and, and to feel like part of a team, but for a lot of writers and for a lot of actors out there that are still trying to, you know, just get callbacks, I can see how it's very, it's a one-sided thing. You can work on something for so long and have the utmost confidence in your craft and what you're doing and you set it off. And there's no process anymore that tells you how close to the mark you were. It could, you could have been 10% or a hundred percent and you will never know. I know. And it makes that, that like age old saying of saying, like telling actors, like have an opinion, make a choice. And so I'm making bolder choices as I get older in this business. Cause I'm like, well, I think this makes complete sense based on my knowledge of script and all these things. And it could be so off base, but with a little tweak, mm-hmm. I could really find it, I think, but I'm, but there's not there's not a lot of time to give feedback. There's not a lot of time to do second tapes. I don't, I don't think I have yet been asked to do a second take on an audition with notes, which I oh, would be, wow. I'm sad about. <laughs> yeah. I actually think when I'm qualifying an, an actor for my show, luckily as a showrunner, I get to be very involved in the process more so than directors even, because if we have a series of, you know, six episodes, there's going to be multiple directors. And so the showrunner's job would be to consistent, you know, will this person be able to do what we know is coming later in the season? And so for instance, we had one character who was going to start off lovable Mm -hmm. and become a villain. No one knew that but me (laughs) in the audition process. And I think we had kind of flagged it, but we brought this kid in and he was so great. And I was like, what if you had to do this, but just like super sinister and gave him all of these kind of feelings to consider if he had to give the same performance, but with a lot of resentment towards your friends, I didn't tip off that you're going to be a villain. I didn't tip off anything like that. And he crushed it. And that's something where I feel like if you're just submitting without the normal process, you're not in the room. So they can't, it's not a playground anymore. It's very window shoppy, if that makes sense. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. It's true. It's true. And I'm just like, all right, we'll just do the best we can. I would love to get into a couple, there's a couple of things I want to hit on today. I absolutely want to talk about working with younger actors, which is something you have a lot of experience with from the Are You Afraid of the Dark? But I also, I want to talk about show running specifically, because this is something we had an episode earlier this season with Ian Weinreich, who oh, is yes. a writer on Flight, Flight Attendant. Attendant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Dead Boys Detective, which is a new HBO show. And he was talking about that, the same thing you just mentioned, which was that writers used to get to produce an episode and then they would get to like have this training on set and then what, like they would work and work these years up and eventually become showrunners. But now the system is kind of shortened because there's less people on set. There's more people going. And I feel like, I mean, tell me how you feel about this, but I, from watching you as a friend, I feel like you became a showrunner so fast. <laughs> so can you talk us through how that happened for you? I mean, I, it, it's, it's uh, interesting. I don't know which beginning to start at because I moved to LA with the intention to write and direct movies. And I got really lucky by, you know, I sold a script, it went into development and 
classic Hollywood story, then like no one called me back. And I was like, oh, that was the end of my, my fun. When you were writing that script though, you were editing, is that correct? Well, so you still had a job like in the no, business? No. So this was like, this was like 10 years ago. I, I was still living oh. in Kansas city and I sold a script because I had directed a movie with $0 in college. So I just like told my friends, some were actors, some were non-actors. And it was in the height of like found footage horror where I was like, we're going to go to a lake house Great. and I have a thousand dollars to buy. <laughs> like you can go shopping, buy your character outfit, buy a lot of booze. And we're just going to have like this week <laughs> in a cabin. And we shot a whole movie the trailer went on YouTube and, you know, there was this company, they're, you know, still around today, very successful. They bought the rights to the movie, but they had asked if we could cool. redevelop it where it's no longer found footage. It's kind of going out of style. Let's put, you know, 5 million into the movie. So they found you from having the trailer on, on YouTube. YouTube. That was how my entire kind of launch into the business started where I was just like everyone else you know, this college kid, you know, I, I'm from Missouri and I couldn't afford the expensive schools. So I went to a uh, university of central Missouri. So it's just a small state school. They didn't have a film program. It was called broadcast media. Mm -hmm. And on my very mm -hmm. first day of like this, they had the speaker come in and I remember they said, Hey, broadcast is dying. Just so all of you know, so they built us all up in that moment where we're like, we know, but what do you want us to do about it? Change majors again. <laughs> and so it wasn't really a film program, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. Oh my God. So I started renting. There were two camcorders that the campus owned, and I started renting those out every weekend and just shooting my own stuff. I wrote a mini series with six episodes, and I have no idea why we thought this was be you know, manageable. It was the most ambitious thing ever to produce a six episode drama around campus. But halfway through production, campus was like, you can't use our property to make your own things anymore. It's, it's not learning anymore. And I was like, oh, I, I would very much argue that it is because we are like producing it ourselves and having <sighs> to write these things ourselves. And it really taught everyone, those who wanted to be actors and behind the camera, what to do. I worked at Applebee's, saved up some money, went out and bought that same kind of yes. camcorder. It's like very, like very Blair Witch project. Like we're talking that level this of is, camcorder. <laughs> I love this. Also, I forget how parallel our lives are that like I was at Missouri State and you were at Central Missouri and I worked at Denny's and you worked at Applebee's. Like, I know. <laughs> we really are. It's the Hollywood story, Sam. Like we're, and, and it's so funny that then we, it took like a CrossFit gym for us to meet. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay. So you had this mediocre, probably like flip cam yes, camcorder. Yes. And I, the intention was to keep shooting it for this series. But, you know, by then we own, like I own the camera and I was like, let's do a movie because then we can actually sell it. We were never intending to do anything with the series except put it on campus cable network. Ah, like a true broadcast journalism major. Yeah. Well, you know, like if you're in a <laughs> dorm room and you turn on that college thing and it's a PowerPoint that's just showing ads, we were like, what if that was actually a show that we made? <laughs> uh, rest in peace. Genius. It, will, it, it will never see the light of day unless someone wants to produce these <laughs> six amazing scripts that are just sitting there. You never know. <laughs> but I had my friend who like who played a a role in that campus show. And I was like, I'm just going to write a movie, like a found footage horror film. And I cast him as the lead. We shot it. The trailer went wide. And then we also shot some comedy sketches just in our apartments. And our YouTube channel got a lot of attention overnight. You know, content creation is obviously still around. It's here to stay forever. Because of the YouTube channel having access with these comedy sketches, then it, you would like randomly see this trailer for a indie horror film. And so people reached out and they're like, what is this movie? And it caught the sights of, there was a company, it's Blumhouse. And back in the day they were doing paranormal activity. And there was a script that they sent me called Vigilandia. And they're like, this is a $5 million movie. This is kind of in the space that we're thinking for years. Well, Vigilandia was the working title for The Purge, which a few people have seen. So. Ah, uh, yes, familiar. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I actually flew out to LA. I hadn't, I hadn't graduated college yet and I was working on this script. And so I was thinking, oh, 
I've made it. Like Hollywood is so easy. Like, oh, you just have to have one good idea (laughs) and be able to like smile your way through a Paramount meeting. And then when I actually moved... I uh, found out, no, that it would, nothing was going to go forward anymore. It was like a fun experience, but everything got shelved. So I had to get a job at a cute little coffee shop called Starbucks. And I was slinging lattes just like everyone else. And because I, you know, had kind of saved money through college by editing like wedding videos or, you know, family function videos, little commercials, I had editing experience. And so I got quickly hired at a studio and I kind of worked my way up onto some big movies like Godzilla and Transformers and at Legendary Pictures. I was there for a little bit and took a step back to start producing some independent films. Just things like I was still getting a paycheck. It was no money at all, but it I felt like it was closer to what I wanted to be doing. And this is when, you know, I took a step, my, my biggest step back. And I said, I'm unhappy. It's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. Like, wouldn't it be grace if you could, if, if, if like the script was good to begin with and the actors involved were talented and like the directing wasn't just like, you know, so bad that we had to kind of cheat our way to a good movie through editing. I think this was at the time when I was at Brick CrossFit where yeah. I quit all of my jobs And I was living off of like any penny that I had saved. And I wrote a, like a feature spec script, a horror script. And Mm -hmm. that's a tough, like when it's so much easier said than done a lot of the times. And I'll give everyone advice on this podcast. Now, if you're looking to break into writing, it's such an annoying thing to hear, but you really do just have to work the job for what you want to do. In addition to the job that, is your reality easier said than done. But because it's those nights when like you've come home, you've worked a long day paying your bills, you're getting your life together. You're trying to have social life. You're trying to network now find the motivation to sit down in front of your laptop and start writing words. It's like the least sexy thing about Los Angeles and about following your dreams. But I kind of decided in that year, I was like, I would like my friends will, and it's so funny talking to you, Sam, because we're very good friends. <laughs> you, she literally uh, mm-hmm. did the reading at my wedding uh, last month. And I feel like I get to see you maybe six times a year if I'm like super lucky. <laughs> and it's because, but, <laughs> but not it. Yeah, no, yeah, no, truly. Because it's like, well, you know, adult, this is good. And what it turns into, but you are so busy. Yeah. I feel well, like I made that decision like I kind of just woke up and I said, this is what I want to do. And it's going to be really hard work, but I will put in everything I have and any other facet of my life can take second priority. And like, luckily, like if you have good friends, they're not going to miss you. If you miss, if you tell your friends that you're going to disappear for three weekends, cause you're going to follow your dreams will absolutely support you. If they miss you, that's one thing, but they will never hold it against you. And if they do, then you need a new friends anyway. So. (laughs) Yeah. But well, that's also the magic of having, I feel like friends once we're in our thirties and like everyone's kind of doing their specific thing is like, we all really understand what it takes to just keep going. And the, I mean, I, I don't think it never, it never gets easier. You just start getting bigger opportunities that then demand more and more time and we'll get to like, I would love to talk about how like managing like the realities of your career versus, you know, your expectations. But as I wrote this horror spec, I sent it to the same people that I had met, you know, almost eight years prior to that point. And they were like, oh, you're still alive. Congrats. Uh, this is really good. And I had one general meeting where, and again, a lot of it comes down to just keep networks alive and always have a good like portfolio ready to go whenever someone asks for it. Because they said, listen, we have this book and we've been paying writers left and right to try to crack it as a movie. Hmm. It's never gone anywhere. Do you just want to read the book? We cannot pay you. If you have an interesting take on it, maybe you could write it on spec. And I read it and called them back and I said, I think your problem is it's not a show or it's not a movie. It's a television show. And I pitched my take on that and it ended up going around, you know, Netflix, Amazon, and it sold to Quibi back when that happened. And it kind of just launched me into 
kind of my writing career. I got representation at UTA and I was, you know, going in all of these generals and everyone wanted, you know, yeah, you know, to, to see what's on my slate. Could I, you know, maybe adapt this book or, you know, did I have anything that I was developing? And my agent called me and said, you are selling things too fast. Cause I had sold three projects and he's like, we need to get you into a writer's room so that you can actually have experience. And I love that because I was like, I would very much love to like learn the ropes before I'm throwing the ropes. And <laughs> it just so happened that one of the companies that I had sold a show to, they were producing Are You Afraid of the Dark? I took the job as a staff writer, entry level point as, as a staff writer. Obviously, there's an assistance and support below that. But yeah, I would say within three months... I went from staff writer to showrunner of the series. And it was a lot of luck and just uh, special circumstances. The, the showrunner that, who was attached was great. There was just a difference of ideas of where to take the show, especially writing YA content is very tricky. And it, it wasn't working out. And at one point they had approached the other writers on the project because there was a room of maybe six of us and and they asked each of us our take on how we would continue the show. And I pitched my version and I got the job. And so obviously that, that was like an extremely lucky circumstance. But after producing or after, you know, getting to be showrunner and then producing six episodes of TV, writing all episodes by myself, you know, for season two, I was invited back to do season three. And now that's just, you know, kind of where I'm grabbing new shows. I mean, you say luck, but also though, that decision of like that you made earlier on that this is what I'm going to make happen. I'm going to just find time to write along with the world I'm living in. I'm going to nurture my network. All the things that you did. Yeah. The timing aligned, but the things you had done to get yourself there also aligned. And that's something I always want to emphasize to actors is because it's very easy to say like, well, I got lucky and like, right. Like we can't discount timing and all those Mm -hmm. things, but you know, sometimes we want to get to a point, but we have to have a backlog of understanding of the work we're getting into and the work we've done, I think, to get there sometimes. And I think your work ethic and your luck and your timing lined up and that equaled your luck to get into that door. I think you're absolutely right. There, It's a controlled luck. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone who has their job, even what nepotism babies at this point, mm-hmm. I think they're like everyone here has to have put in the work. You're not going to get lucky just by writing one script and having it on your laptop. And no one's going to discover you that way. It's it's the same way. No one is going to be able to, you know, you do one audition and then no one's going to be knocking on your door being like, oh my God, we loved you. Can you come back into this one? Not right away. You have to control your own luck, which means just arm yourself with the best chances. When the opportunity does and will present itself at some point, are you ready for the stars to align on your end? Because, you know, on Are You Afraid of the Dark, um, I'm going to segue into like casting actors because this is an acting podcast, obviously, but there was, you know, I was writing season two yeah, and we were starting to think of the cast and I didn't show run the first season. But they said, here are these kids that auditioned. They're all under 15. They auditioned for season one. And we liked some of these. I saw a tape for uh, this kid, Bryce Geyser. And immediately I was like, he is who I picture in my head now when I'm writing this character. What stage were you in the writing process when you started to see tapes for actors? So it was a it was a special circumstance for my show. We started a writer's room and had it go on for about three to four months. And by then, the majority of the show should have been like script ready. I came on as showrunner and had to redevelop it from scratch. And we had a pilot script out in June and started attaching a director. I was flying to Vancouver for quarantine for two weeks in August. And at that time, flying to the city where we're shooting the this show, was this was 2020, yeah, right in the height of COVID, we flew, they greenlit the show, and I was in Vancouver with only one episode out of six written. 
And so oh when I, it was cr- quite crazy, I had written the second one and the fourth one during my my quarantine days, like in a house. That was mm-hmm. when at the same time we were casting the show because it was shooting in like three weeks from that day. And so, yeah, it, wow. it happened very fast. I would say normally you're going to get a lot of the scripts out. Certainly the whole story would be done before you're, you know, they, they start looking at uh, act, actors. If it's a, like a, an established show, I'll say, if it's a show that's going on pilot, it would be for sure after the pilot has been written and passed back and forth. And it's like very sharp. Luckily, I mean, it, it was a lot of hard work having to write the scripts. At one point, we actually started shooting the show. We shot them in blocks. So episodes one and two, and then three and four, and then five and six. At one point, episodes one and two had been shot and I was giving editing notes while we were shooting episodes three and four. So I was on set working with that. And then I would have to find time to be writing episodes five and six all in those two weeks. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, but the show ended up turning out great. You would never know. <laughs> you know, you yeah. no idea. It's a great, great season. I, Holy I like have shit. still, it haunts me where I would be watching a take you know, they'd yell cut. I'd give an actor a note or something really quickly. And then I would run to like a set that wasn't being used on the stage. Like, uh, we had like a teenage boy's bedroom and he had like this desk with all of his like fake homework on it. And Uh I would, I would be like, I can't clean off this desk because it's part of the show, but I would put my laptop there and just try to write, like, even if it was just (laughs) half a page before they're like, okay, rolling. And I would run back. And that's how episodes five and six were written. <laughs> oh my God. Talk about utilizing those time management skills of doing what happens, what you can, when you can back from then. So, so yeah. watching actor tapes and casting this show when like it was such a jumble, right? What mm. were they, because a lot of these actors had auditioned for the first season going into the second one, did you have an idea of what you were looking for? Were there some things that surprised you and what stood out in these tapes, especially for younger actors? For sure. I think I actually have a, a reputation now, at least with my my team and the executives who work closely with me. I do not provide any physical character descriptions at all in my scripts. You will not find one unless if it like mm. clearly is the point of view into the character. I wish I could even provide you with an example, an example, but I don't have one. I think the representation on on screen and just characters they should come in all shapes and sizes and colors and things. So. I never provide that information and casting I've had, you know, good relationships with casting because of that. And also a lot of headaches. Cause they're like, what are you looking for? I was going to say, how do they I feel the, about that? <laughs> I think everyone supports it in theory, but when mm-hmm. it comes down to finding, you know, the pieces and especially with kids, it does become a headache because it could go in any direction. I love that though. I will have five front runners, you know, who are going out for this one character and depending on who we cast there, whether it's a, a man or a woman or whether they're black or they're white or they're Asian, then it it might dictate the next character because you don't like I'm not going out for rainbow casting. I want it to feel authentic, but my approach is I think you need to give it to the person who best brings out the character. And you can't do that with any parameter. So putting a parameter and saying, I want the, you know, the best character for this, you're limiting yourselves from the people who didn't have it. And then likewise, for the past hundred years of Hollywood, it's been the opposite where it's like, no, we want the best white actor. And look at how many, you know, we're only now finally getting to see diverse faces on screen, especially with kids, because it just, it seems so like, look at any friendship circle. Like, it, it does not look like the, the friends where you yeah. just have six white people, beautiful white people. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's almost an added pressure, too, to, like, give opportunity because, I mean, I'm sure you remember this. As a kid growing up in Missouri, I turned on Nickelodeon, and at the time, it was all white people. It, and always. Like, I didn't see I didn't see anybody else, and I lived in these tiny little suburban neighborhoods where like, that's all I saw. And it was part of the reason I was like, get me to a city. <laughs> but it's, so it's, I, I think that's actually kind of rad that you see that. So how many people are you seeing for a role then? 
Well, it varies. I will say, especially because it's their minors, it all goes through our casting and they filter out quite a lot. And so our casting director is going to try to provide the the kids and the tapes that they think, you know, they did not only a good job skill wise that, you know, can these kids act? Because I do think that's a big difference between children and more experienced actors where it does come down where we have, we have to filter out the ones where it's like, this is a school play child, love you. But then now you can carry a show and actually deal with the pressure of when it comes to, can, can you have 40 year old <laughs> men like mean directors yelling at you on set, which I, I hate, but, and I try never to like allow that happen, but we see a lot. <laughs> I would say thousands yeah. of, of tapes with like, yes, a lot of them had auditioned for season one. So when wow. for season two, I was reviewing these tapes and I was like, I love this kid. He has like a spark. I kind of want to develop that for him. And I only saw his voice. He ended up getting the role. And then for season two, there were so many other great actors. There was this kid, you know, we had two really amazing kids go out for the role of like the comedic jokester. One is Arjun. He ended up getting the role for season two, but there was this kid named Luca who was so good. And I was like, it could go either way. And it ended up going in Arjun's favor. And I remember wanting to reach out to Luca and being like, I wish you could understand. And I think I'm speaking broadly to all actors here, how you could do everything right. And it's not about you at that point. It's, it's about, you know, structuring the show around, or is it about deals? It can come down to someone has a thought about what you're going to look like in the scene itself compared to this person, but be memorable no matter what you do, no matter how silly the audition is. Because for season three, I called back Luca and I was like, you auditioned for second season. I picture you for this one. And I, you know, we cast him right away. And so as long as you're engaging and make an impression, hopefully a good impression, but even if it doesn't stick for this one job, you would be amazed that, yeah, even, you know, years could go by. The person who you affected is still thinking about that one amazing tape where it didn't work out and you will be their first call. I guarantee it. So I am not one for New Year's resolutions, but one of the things I am looking forward to this year is to continue building out my hobbies. And one of the things that is one of my favorite hobbies is doing my own nails. So I get some joy, some creativity, some art, and save a ton of money. I do this because I use the Olive and June manicure system. You've seen me use it on Instagram. You've seen it in my email list. I'm like such a big fan of this product, you guys. And they have everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You get to pick your first six polishes that go in that box. And then you can buy a bunch more. I literally have a tray in my bathroom now that is all my different polish colors. I even painted the polish on top of the bottle itself so I can see what color it is from above. I have gone into full hobbyist mode and I am so excited. I am also saving tons of money because I used to go get my nails done all of the time. And now I just do them at my desk at my leisure. And then I sit and listen to a podcast or watch YouTube videos. And that to me is like a double whammy of a hobby. I do not miss going to the salon and I love having this product at home. And you guys know that I also love the press on nails for when I'm in a hurry or I want a little character flair. I love to play with my nails for rolls. And the press-ons also look so real and they take literally eight minutes. I did them in an Instagram reel and it took literally 90 seconds to cut the reel together. That's how fast they are. If you guys are interested in joining me in this new hobby of mine, you can get 20% off your first Manny system. By the way, this also works on the Petty system and the press-on systems. So all of it, get 20% off. That's oliveandjune.com slash broke20. O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash B-R-O-K-E 20 to get 20% off your first nail system. Come and get them. Come have a good time with me. Join the fun. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. What stuck out to you in auditions? Because it's hard to sometimes break through, especially what advice would you give to our, we have a lot of parents of of younger actors and younger actors who listen to the podcast. Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is the right way to qualify tapes, but because everyone's different. And and I, I think there's a lot of people who are listening right now who are also trying to like, what's the secret 
formula. Like what is the yes and the no of self tapes? Mine might be the worst advice ever, but I love, because they tell you never to look into the camera. I disagree. I have found that I get more, Hmm. I find more engagement if you're looking to the camera or just like off camera, like, um, you know, camera left or something like that. Just slightly slightly, because if I can see your eyes and I, if I feel part of the scene, there's a different engagement to where, where I'm just watching a scene, how a director would shoot it. And so here's where I I can understand there's difference of opinions because a lot of people think if, well, if I just shoot this, like the, like it's going to look in the movie, this is exactly what some people are wanting. And I don't know if it's because I'm the showrunner and not directing the episodes, but I disagree. All the tapes I see have that same framing where I'm, they're looking and, and you're almost seeing them, you know, side profile and they're engaging with someone who's really compelling in their apartment that I can't see. Mm. And I'm like, when you put that person who you're speaking with behind my shoulder, I feel all the lines that you're giving me and I can clearly see the emotion on your face. And so it is a cheat that's never, it's never going to look like that in the movie, but my gosh, it's effective on me. And other than that, as far as anything technical, I even don't care what, you know, I'm, you should have good lighting because casting directors love good lighting. <laughs> I, I understand what it's like to shoot in a low light apartment, but make sure your face is all pretty. I think my only yeah. <laughs> other thing that I look for is make it yours, especially mm-hmm. if you know a writer's going to be watching. If this is for a TV show, the showrunner will be watching on some level. He's going to have to approve the cast, even if he's not watching the early rounds, he or she or they. And the important thing to remember is the showrunner, whoever they are, have listened to these words in their head forever. They know exactly what they're going to sound like and what they're supposed to. So if you, as an actor, as a performer, as an artist can change it and surprise the showrunner, the writer, the director, it automatically wins them over because it could be wrong, but it was different and they would have never mm. thought of that themselves, which we all want, especially me. I think I would always give the job to the person who surprised it because they outsmarted the dialogue. So. Mm, I was going to say, I want to add that caveat, like guys with correct motivation, like not yes. because you just wanted to do something different. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh yes. I do think it has to be choices. I love a good choice, but you have to mm-hmm. give an intention. I would not encourage anyone to read a funeral scene, like a broad slapstick comedy, unless if you're like, no JT, this is, I, I'm for sure. I'm, this is my golden idea. It's going to work. Put some thought into it, but I guess, I guess it also depends on your show. So do your research. I know for Modern Family, those writers wrote in cadences. Aaron Sorkin writes in cadence with his dialogue. That's why it's so brilliant. And they're not interested in a performer's uh, take on changing those. So you better hit those commas and you better hit those beats. Mine, I approach it with the other philosophy. If you can put your, like, change the sentence syntax, even change the line around and give it a stronger meaning that I think was an improvement. It's a risk, but if it's an improvement, I will fall in love with you. And I I will think this performer absolutely earned their callback, their take at the job. So is, is there anything in terms of auditioning and like probably, especially doing like callbacks and things like that with younger actors that you feel like is different than working with more seasoned actors? Do you feel like, I personally would feel like almost a pressure to like take care of them in a way? Is there a different way you, you work with them in that aspect? I, I do. I didn't see it at first myself because Are You Afraid of the Dark was the first thing that I had really done on a professional level. I'd worked with actors. I did 48-hour films. I did my own found footage movies. But when it's a professional setting, I wanted to do it right. And mm-hmm. I'm learning on the job with these young kids And so, I mean, that's not actually true. Some of them have had so much more experience than I did. So I was learning from them. But my approach was simple. My first priority was to make sure they're comfortable. Mm. And I think this is a, this should be a standard for any working environment, not just with, you know, if you're working with minors, child actors, who we know have in the past have like notoriously had it the hardest. 
but I reach out to them and their families just to let them know I will be here with whatever you need. Make them comfortable, make them understand like this is their set. You're a guest in their working careers and vice versa, and we're going to make a great team. So always want them to feel safe and comfortable and excited to come to work that day. And then when it comes to the actual day job, set life is hard. Any actor who's been on set, whether it's you're there 12 plus hours as background, like just standing in the same place, that's a hard day. If you're giving your Viola Davis monologue where you're bursting into tears and you're in, you know, you're going on take 10, that's a hard day. It's also a hard day when you're showing up and you're the lead character and we're, co- we're covering everyone else but you that day. <laughs> and so we're just behind you and you have to keep giving enough to your co-stars to get a good reaction. And so all of these are things that, you know, especially children, they're not used to and it can be exhausting. My biggest approach is setting the bar high. Tell them what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And I'm almost trying to mentor them for their next job. I want all of them to succeed. Luckily, I've never had a, uh, I've had issues on my show with some actors. None of them were the kids. (laughs) So I've been very, very lucky because I think kids are impressionable and they want to impress you and they are, they're willing to admit mistakes and to learn. And yeah. Yeah. So. I was going to ask you, are there things that you've seen with child actors that you wish that more adult actors would do? Come prepared. Absolutely come prepared. I don't know if it's just because, you know, are you afraid of the dark? If you're working with like seven minors and these teenagers where we're like, listen, you're going to be out running in the cold. You're a family. We need to get through this because we don't have 20 minutes to lose. We kind of motivated them to be like, this is a team you're, you, this is this, whatever you were making is going to be available forever. And we want you to feel proud of it. This is your big, you know, TV show that requires, I I don't know if, you know, if we're going to wrap late and you want to go back to the hotel room and eat pizza and, and have a celebration, but just make sure you know your lines coming in the next day and ask the right questions and kind of be sharp, ready to do it. I've never since having those powwows had an issue with a young person coming in who's not on their A game, whereas we would bring adults in who are just day players and they, you know, I, I, don't, I don't care if you're on three different TV shows at the same time. If you took the job, you're doing the job. They would come in, not know their lines, and we're wasting precious time for them to remember while the, our 16-year-old actor, he's turning into a pumpkin and we lose him. And the pressure falls down on the, the, on the child more than the adult because now we're like, well, you got to give us everything perfect. There's no wiggle room for you anymore. Yeah, I would say that's the biggest, the biggest difference. Also, I would say normally with children, you want to shoot closer to the script less room to play. And with adult actors, you want to give them a longer leash. We have a lot of great improv actors on our show. But for season three, we kind of flipped that narrative and we wanted to give the kids, we would always call it scrappy it up. And so we would get everything safe that we needed. And then for the last second to last take, we would say scrappy it up, do whatever you want. They would make such interesting choices that would never, ever work for the show. But it did let them loosen up what, how they're feeling and how they've said the lines. Because then when you grab your last take, it was sensational every time. So, yeah. I mean, that's something we could all use in general. I think for self tapes and everything to just like do one fast and loose and then like get it in. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's very useful. Well, we're, I mean, we're flying here, but I did want to talk about (laughs) the two seasons of Are You Afraid of the Dark you've done so far. The first one was in Canada And then the second one was in Dominican Republic Mm -hmm. and you are working on more stuff right now. Like there's a lot going on, but you've also worked because of those ramifications too. You've worked with a lot of local hire actors Mm -hmm. and I'm curious how that works because obviously you bring in your ensemble cast, like your leads from the bigger cities from the U S but in terms of working with local hires, there's a lot of actors who listen to this podcast who are from small markets, even outside of the U S they're often told to just get to a big city and just start working and stuff. But the people you found, how did you find them? And what are some things you learned about working with the locals? 
I think anyone who's telling you to move to a big city because you want to be an actor is going on an antiquated idea of what it means to be an actor. That might be true for your agent wants you to move to the city because when you're in meetings, it's going to be more available. And and I'm speaking, this was even pre-COVID, before the world changed and went remote. So many things don't shoot in LA anymore. They shoot in cities all across the world, specifically I'll keep it to like our country and Canada. Local actors are not only necessary, they're like the backbone of the project. So I flew up to Vancouver. We shot the show there. I think we were there for four months. Based on like the tax laws and everything, we knew that we needed one of the leads of the show to be local in order to qualify. We actually ended up casting three local actors, all from Vancouver, Malia Baker, Beatrice Kitsos, and Dominic Mariche, and like stars of the show. And it's because, you know, we had to look at local actors anyway. And I was like, I don't care if they've been on Nickelodeon before. I don't care what you know, how many TikTok fans they have, get me the best kids. And so when we couldn't find that with our Americans, I said, open the floodgates, like show me the, the Vancouver tapes and fell in love with all of these actors. And those were just for the leads. Every other role, period, was a local hire because we don't have the money to fly in you know, oh, I love this this actor from New York. Or I love this, you know, actress from LA. Let's get her here. No, that doesn't happen. They're always looking to save money. And so they're going to tap into local markets. And so this is when I would argue, as much as you might gain from sitting at Earth Cafe in Los Angeles and like pretending to schmooze and meet agents, which we all know is just, you know, fodder, like it's all fake. No one's actually networking. And this is not to say avoid those networking parties because I think networking is a huge part of your responsibility as like if you want to get in, in the door with someone, walk through some doors. But that also applies to if you are you in Austin, Texas, or are you in Atlanta, or are you up in Vancouver or anywhere in the you know these areas where you're seeing film crews pop up? Because if you you just can network and get to know a casting director, do some local theater, get into some local contests where you know casting directors go and see. Because when the time comes and it's inevitable, the production will say, "All right, Vancouver local casting." give us your best. They will be your best friend and your biggest advocate. They will show us your tapes. They'll, if we, we might say not, not who we're looking for, they'll show us twice. They'll say, nope, I'm going to have them redo it. We'll keep going. You can absolutely make a living just doing local hire on projects because there's so many shows that depend on it, whether it's a career as doing you know day playing or small arcs. I will tell you this little story. For season two of Are You Afraid of the Dark, one of the adult characters. His name was Sardo. And when I wrote the role, we put it out towards men and we were not finding the best luck with it because it was one of those, it could be campy and extra broad comedy. And I wanted a, a different approach to it. So I asked casting, can you send it out to any gender or non-gender? I was like, just let's open this up to any performer who could play Sardo. And there was this wonderful actress named Kaylin Miles. She auditioned for the role and I loved her. She was a local hire. She had done, she was just like a local comedian and she would kind of audition on the side. I was like, I don't care. She's doing this new age earth thing where she's like lighting incense and she has this big <laughs> fucking scarf for no reason in the, in the sides. And I just fell in love with the comedy of it all where I was like, Castra Sardo. It ended up not working out for that character because I think there were just preconceived notions like, no, let's honor the, you know, the legacy of like, we found this other great guy who was the perfect Sardo. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was great. I loved, yeah, he was fantastic. But I loved Kaylin so much where I wrote her, her own role in the show. And she plays the teacher who's in five of the six episodes named Miss Schaffner. And she was so fucking funny in that show and I would like die for her and I would tell anyone to hire her but now she's or you know she's kind of playing like a similar role in another Paramount Plus show that's coming out soon and this was just it's like a story of a local hire that you know she was just funny and she was what I was looking for and that's all it takes and so don't be afraid to submit locally I even tell friends in LA (laughs) I shouldn't be telling them this because this is like adding to the problem of uh, making it more competitive for local actors but I'm like, if you're not finding luck here, 
go visit Vancouver, <laughs> go visit one of these other cities and maybe try out an audition because you'd be surprised that your luck might change. Not that the pool is smaller necessarily, but it just might be, your, it's a better fit for you. So. Yeah. I have a, a lot of friends who are from Canada, so it was very easy for them to move, mm -hmm. not easy, but easier for them to move home. And because they don't have to deal with the green card, all the visa ramifications of that, but they are enjoying themselves very much living where they want to live and like auditioning how they audition and just living the life and they're having a great time. And it's just so nice to think that actors are everywhere. We are everywhere. And you just have to, yeah, you got to do the work. You got to meet the people and still have the agents and then get the, to get the opportunities, it but is. And it's there, you know, with, uh, there. with season three, we shot it in the Dominican Republic. And I think actually like 86% of the cast are like on camera were all locals and we had flown in the kids, but every other role was someone that who, mm. who we found on the island and it, it, they were just like so remarkable. And obviously there's some who, you know, they can fly back and forth between the U.S. And those are, I would say, the privileged local actors where if I had a show shooting in New York uh, and she would say, okay, I'll put myself up in New York and I'll be a local hire there. That's obviously a, 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 like, you know, you're blessed if you can do something like that. But either way, I, I, I would not be discouraged by being in one of these, you know, other cities because if... Hollywood uses your town, they're going to use the local talent there. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question before we go. And it's that you we are in this like really fun time. And a lot of actors who listen to this are where we are all starting to come up in our lives. Like I think after like you like struggle in your twenties and then like thirties, you're like, I guess it's not so horrible. And then I feel like forties, you're like, I can like figure shit out. Like I'm really excited about that, but I feel like I'm watching all right. of my friends <laughs> like you and so many people we know there's, they're finding their footing and they're getting their foot in the door and you're getting opportunities and you're, you're in a growth period. And there is an assumption or there is a want from everyone to want to take your friends with you. And you and I have talked about this a lot. Like you're like, yeah, we're going to work together. Or like we're going to do something at some point. Like eventually like I got to do a voiceover for your last season of Are You Afraid of the Dark, which is super fun. Uh, guys, there's a podcast in the show. Mm -hmm. You should listen to it. It's a little, it's, it's fast, mm -hmm. but you got to listen. But so things <laughs> like that, I want to talk about the realities of working with your friends because I think there is a lot more red tape between you and getting mm -hmm. to hire your friend than people know about. So can we discuss that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I like, if you know me, I feel privileged and lucky to have gotten where I am. And when I have friends that are still struggling to break into the process, or even if they're in the game, but they just could use a break, like something lucky, I would love to deliver that because I feel like it's only fair. And I do use this analogy that I think a lot of this town can benefit from like the piggyback ladder system where it's like you have to step over someone to climb higher and then reach down your hand and let them go ahead of you. And then everyone can kind of reach the top together. It is hard. There is a lot of red tape. I know that. So I've been wanting to get you on my shows forever. And, you know, it's funny, this actually ties back in with our earlier conversation about local hires where everyone's down for it. And as the showrunner, I can kind of just like will you into that. But then they're like, well, can, you know, can Sam be a local hire? And can we do this? And because we can only afford to, to bring in this person. And so you, you have to deal with those realities. Or we're looking for someone who's like, no, we, we need, you know, this actor who can, you know, we spend so much time looking for... <laughs> Uh, specifically for the villain role of season three, an actor who can perform and do like the, uh, the physicality behind the movements, which we ended up never needing in the show, but it's tough. <laughs> and like, I do, I would take, if they're your good friends and they're telling you that they want to work with you, I would take them for their word. They probably have every intention of doing that, but it it's not entirely up to them. And I certainly can't snap my fingers and make it happen. What I can do is position myself and you in the best places so that it could align. And I mean, obviously when I had a podcast character in the show and I was like, Sam, can you record the voice? It would just be lovely to have you make a cameo before I can get you into something, you know, bigger. And, and so that was fun, but there's a lot of hurdles to jump over. And I'll say I'm that first person who 
I want to find an, an actor. I want them to qualify for SAG on my shows. Like I work really hard to try to position that. The same thing with the writers that I hire. I will hire an assistant writer for the room. And by the end of the show, I'm like, you, I'm going to refer you to whatever job you want, but I'm going to hope that you're going to position yourself to get that staff writer job. If you can't afford the the union fees right now, I'll front you and you, we can go and... and I'll, I'll talk to everyone, but you should try to position yourself. When I have other friends who I'm trying to, you know, get gigs, you know, I'll say, okay, and then, you know, we'll, the show will pay you this much. And they're like, no, don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, you should ne- don't work for free. I think this is like a, 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 there's a caveat to this, obviously. You have to work for free if it's just you out there. You need to be doing the auditions and you need to be writing those spec scripts. But once you're in the position where people are actually utilizing your services, no, you need to, and you deserve compensation for that. And so when it comes time to, you know, finding people, they're like, I, I need a SAG card. I had, you know, these these friends in Vancouver that I had met and they were our stand-ins and they were so talented and they worked their asses off every day. And so before the season was over, I was like, I would love, I need a line from them. I need, I need them to say a line right now on camera, wrote it in on the spot and they then had screen time and it got them their SAG card. And I think those are the little hacks or the helpful hands that someone like a showrunner could provide you. They wish they could do more, but it is navigating. I would never hold it against someone and I would hope vice versa, like a position in power would never hold it against someone who's upset that it's not happening for them. I think we're all trying to get to the top and we're all trying to just chase our dreams. And so to keep that sense of humanity, but also don't be a dick. And if your friends are trying to be working actors and you have a gig, give it to your friends. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. And I think, well, it's also a nice reminder that like, there's so much more than one person making decisions on these things though, too. Like, yeah, yeah you're those people who are your stand-ins, they, they showed up, they did the work every day and you were able to do some, pull some strings at the very end. Right. But that expectation was never necessarily there for them. You know what I mean? I have some actors who've come to me and said like, my friend, has a show and they're the lead. And like, I've never auditioned for it. I'm like, but that's, there's so many things you don't know about. Also, you don't even know if there's a role for you, right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah. there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. And it changes constantly. I remember the role that I had wanted you for in season three and it ended up, we changed the character to like a, an 18 year old and Sam, I'm not doubting you mm-hmm. can, you can play any role that you wanted, but it was just going to be harder you know, where we like, were looking. We, uh, we're, <laughs> there's things we can do with lighting, but that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, it's, it's a big leap going to like, oh, we, I was thinking Sam Valentine and now we're looking for a 17 year old local hire in the Dominican Republic <laughs> where I was like, um, she doesn't tick the boxes anymore, but, uh, maybe there's something we can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I would, I yeah, would hope it, that everyone can just be a little like understanding. Obviously, as powerful as a showrunner is, as powerful as one of the Avengers, one of the actors playing an Avenger is, it's not ultimate say. You'd actually be surprised at how little say they are because you know the wrong type of people just look at them as numbers. Everyone is going through the same challenges, no matter what level you get to. I think that's actually some a, a takeaway. Yeah. Like, obviously, be excited to start booking and, and getting in there. But you're just going to move your own finish line even further ahead, which is so good. I'm not saying don't do that. You need to keep setting the bar higher for yourself. But it never feels like you're, you've won the race, ever. Right. Right. Well, and I Mm -hmm. think this is a lovely note for us to end on because we started with the fact that in school, you kept setting your bar higher. It started with like, oh, we're going to make some things on the weekends. Oh, we're going to film a show. Oh, well, actually, I'm going to buy a camera. Now we're going to film a movie. Then you got to LA, a script got bought. Cool. It never got made. Okay. Make the pivot, do the thing, right? Like there's just so many, you, you sold a show to Quibi then Quibi died. Right. And like your, it's a, it's a nice reminder that as much as we think as actors, sometimes we get a little myopic and like, Oh, this business is so hard on us. This is so, it's like the, the rejection, we get so much rejection. It's like every edge of this business is experiencing the same things and every person in it is going through the same ringer. And if we could all understand that there's a lot more of a power balance and little less like us versus them. And it's just so much 
lovelier to exist in it. It is. I mean, that's such an insightful thing. And thank you. Cause as you were just going through, I was like, wow. Yeah. All I'm hearing is like failure, failure, failure. <laughs> um, <there's, laughs> but what I see is exactly. bounce back, bounce back, it is bounce just perspective. Back. There's a show that I have, I developed it. I wrote it and I cannot wait for it to get made if ever, but it's been like, I, I think now six different people who are big people or big companies have attached themselves to it. And every single time it's like, yep, this is it. It's happening with them. And then it falls short. I don't think you can be reactionary to things like Mm -hmm. that. And you certainly can't hold ill will against your craft when things aren't balancing into place. Because if anything, yeah, defeat sucks and, and having to fail and go back to the drawing board. But I think I maintain a healthy mindset and I hope everyone else listening can when use that energy to be like, Hey, it got, to the right people. So this is just another opportunity to go even bigger. And so if you're getting those callbacks and if you're doing everything right, you can just feel it in your bones that you get the audition or that you're, you're going to get the role. And then you get the bad news that it didn't swing your way. That is not what you should be processing is how little you had left to go or you know how imperfect you are because you didn't meet that expectation for yourself. What your takeaway should be is like, I got so close. And I can do it again. I can get even closer, you know. Oh, I love that. Where do you want to direct people to? What projects, what spaces, any social media, anything like that? Nothing. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on social media, but I'm sure you can just find me. There's <laughs> nothing really interesting except pictures of my dogs. I, I would say if you want to check out some stuff, uh, you can watch Are You Afraid of the Dark? That's streaming on Paramount+. Plus. And actually just watch a lot of Paramount+, Plus because I have three franchises in the mix coming up. So that's just where you'll see a lot of my work. Three franchises. That is a bounce back, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) JT, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. 